arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple there named a disciple there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. They all knew that his father was Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered them for observation, to them for observation, the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you might be with us this morning as we hear your word preached. We pray that you would be so merciful that as we hear your word, you would not let us leave this place without it touching, convicting, or encouraging our hearts. Help us not be cold to your word. Help us grow in love for you, love for one another. You know all the ways that we need conviction in our hearts, Father. We pray that you would help us feel conviction about sin, feel the sharpness of your word and how it applies to our lives. In all the ways that we need encouragement, Father, to continue persevering in obedience. Would you help us be encouraged to keep walking forward in faith and obedience? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of today's sermon is A Conscience Trained by Grace. Conscience Trained by Grace. I begin by sharing a story in 2005. Colette and I were uh, just in college, dating, not yet married. We found ourselves on a mission trip in the northern part of India, one of the only parts in the world that really competes in heat with Texas. We were going from, from village to village there for five, six weeks, sharing the gospel, sharing our testimony, meeting churches and pastors, being encouraged, encouraging others. And one day in one of the villages that we were in, Colette and I decided to walk out from the hotel and walk down the street, uh, generally uh, safe for us to do. And we did that. We started walking down the street, and we, we hadn't quite made up our minds yet that we were going to get married. I, I made my mind up. Colette uh, hadn't realized God's will for us uh, just yet. But we walked down the street together, and we were holding hands. We walked down the street together holding hands. I don't remember if we were talking or praying or what we were doing, but we were holding hands, boyfriend and girlfriend, mission trip together in India. No big deal. We get back to the hotel, Colette. Uh, goes up to her room, I go to my, my room, and there were two uh, IMB journeymen who were with us. Uh, they were on a two-year uh, mission trip in, in India, and they were traveling with us. And one of those girls uh, pulled Colette aside 
and I would say pretty scoldingly and uh, with some pretty sharp admonishment uh, to her recollection, shared that we should not be walking down the street holding hands, that it was scandalous in India to do such a thing, and that we were actually ruining our witness for Christ by being Americans in India, walking around holding hands. It was terrible. So she was not happy. Colette was crushed. If you know Colette, you would know that would be of her utmost concern, that we would be a good witness uh, for Jesus Christ. I had zero conscience about this. I had not thought about this. No one told me any, any different. Colette comes to me later. We, we met up in the hallway to go to dinner. I could tell Colette was not herself. She was not well. She was really upset. And only later was she able to tell me uh, that uh, Julie had scolded her, let her know we, we should not be holding hands. We're, we're ruining our, our witness. I just, even after hearing that, I thought, I don't, I don't know about that. I mean, I, I don't know. I'm not, in, I'm not an Indian. I'm not from India, so I don't know the culture. Maybe it is. I didn't feel that. So I went to Nazir, our pastor, or, or the pastor who was uh, leading our trip. Been in India for decades, became a, a Christian after a motorcycle accident, planted many churches in North India, very mature, very jovial, very... Uh, happy brother. And uh, we were sharing a room that night. I went to, to him after dinner and I just said, we were holding hands earlier, walking down the street. And uh, Julie came to Colette and let her know that we were ruining our witness and uh, that this was scandalous and this was not a good thing. And I'm just so sorry. I, I didn't even think about it. it it's, uh, it's my fault. And I just want to know, like, is that, is that really a, a bad thing? Like, did we really mess up? And I can't do the, the, the Indian accent very well. I wish I could. But Nazir just looked at me and he just laughed out loud. And he said, oh, no, 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 no. This, uh, th this is okay. This is no big deal. This girl, she's only jealous that she has no boyfriend. And I was greatly relieved, both myself that moment and greatly relieved to tell Colette, we can hold hands all we want to uh, for the sake of the mission and uh, for the sake of my uh, pursuing you in marriage. But doesn't this happen all the time, these kinds of things? Two people look at the very same action, and one person says, I'm sure it's fine. I'm sure it's fine. The other person looks at the very same action and says, I don't think this is a good idea. It's dangerous, or this is, this is bad. And sometimes, we're both people. Sometimes we look at the very same action, and one moment we think, this is probably okay now, and we find ourselves in a different situation and think this very same thing is probably not good in, in this situation. Well, as the gospel of Jesus crucified is spreading from Jerusalem around the world through the book of Acts, we are experiencing situations like this. And that's where we come to in Acts 15 and 16. The followers of Christ are seeing, and we are seeing how the followers of Christ are exuding consciences trained by grace. Conscience trained by grace. There are a couple of things going on in this chapter, the end of 15, beginning of 16. The first thing is that disagreement about who gets to go on the mission trip. I've been a part of some of those disagreements myself over the, over the years. And the big deal is that, that Mark went home early on the last trip. He cut out. He, he didn't go with us. So, so Paul refuses to take Mark with them. We're not taking Mark. And it becomes such a sharp disagreement that Paul and Barnabas go their different ways. But then in the next section, Paul takes Timothy. And there's a crisis with Timothy. Timothy's a Gentile. 
And Paul is so convinced that he might be offending the Jews in the cities that they go to that he has Timothy circumcised. So you see these conscience issues going on in both sections. Paul and Barnabas disagree about whether or not they should take Mark. Paul would actually have Timothy circumcised but so that he doesn't offend the Jews everywhere they go. I think it almost sounds like it should be flip-flop. Like this was a much easier thing for Paul to give his conscience to. Let Mark go back on the trip with you. And actually have this man circumcised so that he can go on a mission trip with you. Well, what's going on? Paul divides over Mark and he won't take him. But he goes way out of his way to make sure that Timothy can join them. And this is all coming from a grace-trained conscience. We're going to observe why Paul made the decisions that he did and learn from him how we can train our own conscience in the same way. How we can have a conscience that is trained by the gospel, by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, when you think of conscience, what do you think of? What is a conscience? What is that? Here's the definition. Your conscience is your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong. Your conscience is your consciousness, your awareness, your thinking about what you believe is right and wrong. Your consciousness about what you believe is right and wrong. Everybody has a conscience. You might say someone who does something really bad, well, they don't have a conscience. Well, they do. It's just turned off or it's not working. Everyone has a belief about what is right and wrong. This definition comes from a superb Burke book that I highly, highly recommend by Andrew Nacelli and J.D. Crowley called Conscience. Called Conscience. They offer a really thorough Bible study on the subject of conscience. Think about the conscience biblically. According to Scripture, we want to look at all these passages, but according to Scripture, if you just went and word search conscience today, you'll find the conscience can be good. Or the conscience can be strong. Our conscience can be weak. It can be defiled. It can be blameless and washed and pure. It can be trained. It can actually change over time. Your ideas of right and wrong can change over time. And actually, if you look at the conscience through Scripture, we can see it needs training. Our consciences on our own, all humanity will have some semblance of grace to have some semblances of right and wrong. So, for example, generally in the world, it is a collective conscience among humanity that murdering puppies is wrong. Generally, I think we would all agree, amen, I'm just making sure everyone amends to this so I know who I'm talking to today, Murdering puppies is wrong. Where does that come from? From the law? Does the Bible say murdering puppies is wrong? Does, does this is wrong in Buddhism? This is just a general. You don't even have to have a religion to believe uh, things like murder are wrong. But we see that Paul's conscience is trained by grace. It's trained by the gospel. Look at the circumcision that... <laughs> That's, it's, it's that kind of morning. Guys, I got a call at 4.23 a.m. this morning from our fire department, or from our fire company, saying uh, that our fire alarm was going off, uh, which it didn't. It's fine. We're here. But if I say circumcision instead of circumstance all morning, just, you just do the translation, okay? You, you're going to have to keep up. Here's the situation for Paul. A decision about circumcision in chapter 16 
Read again chapter 16. Paul came also to Derbe in Lystra, a disciple there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his problem, his father was Greek. He's well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And so instead of you know, leaving off a light load like Mark, he picked up what looked like a heavy load in terms of conscience. He took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Let's make sure we understand this circumstance. Circumcision is really two things. Here's what's going on. Circumcision is two things. One, it's a covenant sign. To take on circumcision is to take on the sign of God's covenant with Israel. It's to take on a sign that you are God's people and God is your God. When you take on that sign, that's what that means. But it also works often in the New Testament as shorthand for the law. It represents the whole of the law. To take circumcision is to say, I'm going to keep God's law. I'm going to keep the Mosaic law. I'm part of God's covenant people, so therefore I'm going to submit myself and I promise to obey the law of Moses. We see it used this way by Jesus and Peter and Paul in the New Testament. Well, don't you have to take the sign of circumcision and keep Moses' law to be saved and avoid God's wrath? Isn't that the way that you are saved in Judaism, in the Old Covenant. That, that was the whole discussion in the chapter before, chapter 15. So go back in chapter 15, just look at verse 5. The gospel of grace in Jesus is spreading to Jews and Gentiles. They're reporting that in Acts 15, that even Gentiles are being saved by grace in the Spirit. But look at Acts 15, 5. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said... It is necessary to circumcise them. Look how these Gentiles become Christians. That's fine. But if they want to be saved and they want to be part of the people of God, we need to circumcise them. They take on the sign. And we need to order them to keep the law of Moses. Circumcise them, give them the sign, and tell them to keep the law of Moses. The Sabbath, marriage, tithing, you can go on. This is a burden that no one can bear. This is a burden that no one can bear. Peter calls it that. Who can keep God's law? Who can keep the law of Moses perfectly like God? Who can say of himself, I am holy, holy. I'm entirely holy like God is perfect. I can keep the law like God keeps the law. No one Noah, to try to be perfectly good is a crushing burden. If you've been living this week without the grace of Jesus Christ and trying to do really, really, really good, it's exhausting. It's impossible. It's a burden. Peter says, that, says it that way in chapter 15, verse 10. Now, therefore, brothers, why are you? You want them to be circumcised and follow the law. Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. We can't do it. It's too heavy. If you're going to say they have to be circumcised to keep the law of Moses, no one can bear that weight. Jesus, however, came to bring something new. Grace. The grace of God is what lifts off the burden from us and places it on Jesus Christ. 
burden of righteousness, the burden of wrath, the burden of the law that we cannot bear. So look at it together, chapter 15, verse 10, 11. Peter clarifies it. Now, therefore, brothers, why are you saying you have to be circumcised and keep the law? You're putting God to the test when you do that by placing that yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither your fathers nor we have been able to bear. But here's the message. Here's what Jesus means. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. Us Jews, even as they will Gentiles. Jews, circumcised, Gentiles, everyone, everyone can only be saved by grace. Do you know that this is the message of the gospel? Not try hard or do better? That's not the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is all pointing forward and backward that when Jesus died on the cross, he took the burden of obedience and righteousness and he took it on himself. He took all of our sin on himself that we might be counted righteous through faith in him. The cross is like God driving a stagecoach, and he gets down and he looks at the beast of burden that has been pulling this all along and realizes they cannot do it. And he has his son come in and take on the yoke himself. Only he, in his perfect morality and sinlessness, can bear the weight of the law for us. That's a yoke that we can't carry, but only Jesus can. So Peter says we're saved through the grace of of the Lord Jesus. That is how you have the yoke of the burden of righteousness taken off your neck and the burden of your punishment for sin taken off your neck by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So, you might conclude that there is no situation ever where Paul would suggest ever or encourage anyone or instruct anyone or permit anyone to go backwards and be circumcised. Now we believe in Jesus, so don't have to get circumcised. You don't, you're, you're not bound to keep the law of Moses for your own salvation. But to say that would be like, would be like getting married and then going to get a tattoo of your old girlfriend's name. We're significantly going backwards here. That would be a, a covenant going backwards. So why in the world would Paul have Timothy circumcised? Why would Paul, the preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the one who's been commended to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, why would he have Paul or Timothy circumcised? And how can we learn about a grace-informed, grace-trained conscience? Well, two big things we're going to look at. One of them is Timothy, and one of them is actually Titus. We're going to see that Paul has Timothy circumcised because it displays grace, or when it displays grace. Paul has Timothy circumcised when it displays grace. Timothy's circumcision to the community and the villages they were going to actually displayed the grace and the love of Jesus Christ. So this is how we read Paul's situation. Paul, Paul brings Timothy inside and says, listen, I know your, your mom is Jewish and that's great. 
You know, I know that she has been training you in the scriptures since, since you were little, 1 Timothy 3, 2 Timothy 3. And that, that's all helpful, really, but listen, your dad's Greek. And uh, it's a big problem. Everywhere we go, from village to village, they're going to see, they're going to know that you're Greek. Your accent might give it away, your clothes will give it away, your name will give it away. Everywhere you go, they're going to see you not just half Greek and half Jew, they're going to see you as Greek. And doors are going to be closed. So I don't know how to tell you this, Timothy, but we're going to have to have you circumcised for the sake of going village to village to village. Because if you don't, there's going to be a door closed to us. Now, if there's going to be a sharp disagreement between two brothers, I really expected that it would have been between Timothy and Paul, not Barnabas and Paul. If Nazir tells me, for example, hey, let's, let's not hold hands anymore for Jesus' sake on the mission field, okay, no problem. But if, if Nazir says there's a religious ceremony and it's pretty involved, uh, I think I would think differently about that. That's what Paul does. He actually pays the greater cost in conscience for the sake of the gospel. Why does Paul do that? How does grace inform the way he thinks about conscience and liberty? Paul's paying careful attention. If Timothy is uncircumcised and he shows up in Jewish communities, they will immediately see a Greek, a religious outsider, and Timothy, probably Paul himself, don't get a foot in the door. As we'll see weeks later, Paul gets arrested. His arrest in Jerusalem is because he's got Gentile in the temple. But if Paul can say in those cities to the Jews, no, 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 Timothy has taken on our Jewish covenant sign, brothers, then the Jews in those places may go, really? Well, okay then, a Greek is circumcised. We'll come in, let's, let's have dinner, let's hear what all this is all about. Then eventually, Paul gets to relay everywhere that he goes, city to city, the news that he heard back in the council in Jerusalem that the Jews and Gentiles are all saved equally by grace, not by circumcision. Paul gets an inward into their homes, into the synagogues. And he gets a chance to say, perhaps because of Timothy's circumcision, that you don't have to be saved by circumcision, that you can't. But Timothy was actually circumcised not for himself, <clears throat> not for his own religious practice, but for them. He was circumcised for their weakness. He took on the yoke, the burden, quote-unquote, as it were, not for himself, but for them. That's the shape of the gospel. That's the shape of grace. Back when I was a Christian who did not think Christians were allowed to drink alcohol. No Christians could drink alcohol. That's how I was, how I was raised. Uh, it's bad for Christians to drink any form of alcohol. And there's some wisdom to uh, such a practice. I remember sitting around multiple, multiple friends talking missiology and what is salvation, what is faithfulness, and asking questions. I mean, this is a big, scandalous question to me when I was 19. Would you drink a beer with a lost person? Even though you disagree with drinking beer, would you drink a beer if it meant they might listen to you? They might feel like you're not judging them by ignoring a beer? I mean, all this was when I was too young to legally drink anyway. This is the kind of question that Paul's dealing with. What would I do that for me is not necessary or something that I might have a liberty to do that I would do in order to gain an audience for the sake of the gospel? There's a myriad of, of circumstances like this in our 
lives every day where we go, much less out on the foreign mission field with other cultures. What do you, what do, you do? Paul's conscience is trained like this. Circumcision is not needed for my salvation, but I can use my liberty so they can hear about salvation through Jesus. See, look what just happened. The council made the decision. Decision made, you don't have to be circumcised or keep the law to be saved. You can't. We're saved only by grace through faith. And Paul leans over and whispers to Timothy, so we're going to have to get you circumcised for a different reason. Paul wants to win people to Jesus. That's what he wants. Paul wants to win more people to Jesus by telling them about the grace of Jesus Christ. So he observes his context and he takes pains. He takes pains. Timothy may be more pains, but make sure they don't stumble over the fact that Timothy's a Greek. Paul would explain why he does what he does to the Corinthian church like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Paul says, verse, chapter 10, 31 to 33, in 1 Corinthians, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Here's what he says in verse 32. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. That's his instruction. Don't give an offense to Jews or Greeks or the church of God. But here's his personal example. Verse 33. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but in every culture, every setting I go in, I'm trying to seek the advantage of many, them that they might be saved. Dear Christians, I think this is a danger that we are facing in our witness today. We are being taught in some churches. We are being taught in politics. We're being taught in our culture that it is really strong, it is really mature to say things like, I have a clean conscience before God, and who cares what anyone else says? Who cares what anyone says? I don't care what you say, I just have to answer to God. I don't have to answer to you. A clear conscience is not just whatever gives you personal comfort, however. Paul says in his defense in Acts 24, verse 16, I always take pains. I take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. We all know very well that we live in a culture of hypersensitive offendedness. Do you have an American flag? That offends me. You didn't put up a flag in your yard for 4th of July. That offends me. You're eating meat at work. I'm a vegetarian. I actually love animals. That offends me. Breastfeeding in public? Offended. Civil War statue? Offended. Democrat? No. Well, that's offensive. Or you must be a Republican. Yeah, well, that's offensive. You laughed. That's offensive. Anonymous, passive-aggressive, social media post. Let's all say it together. Offensive. And as Christians, we are tempted to take this line in the culture today. Okay, okay. Everyone, you're too offended. 
You're too offended. We're Christians. We're mature. We've got liberty. We've got to answer to God. So we're kind of just offended that everyone's so offended. And we're so offended that we don't even care if you're offended anymore. We're so sick of everyone being offended, our consciousness becomes seared in regards to caring whether anyone might actually be unnecessarily offended by us. Christians, let us be careful that in our culture of hyper-offensiveness, our conscience is not trained by a heartless, I don't care if that offends you or not. We do not win anything by being more heartless. But we might lose opportunities to tell people about Jesus. Listen again to Paul. Give no offense to the Jews or Greeks. Just as I try to please everyone and everything I do, whatever you're, you're eating and, and your, your customs, not seeking my own advantage, but that many might be saved. A heart that proudly and ignorantly boasts, I don't care if that offends anyone, is incompatible with the heart that says, oh, that many might be saved. Which one of those is more likely dominating your heart about the people around you? I don't care if that offends anyone. Or, oh, that so many more might be saved. They're incompatible. The grace-trained conscience says, I want to remove any offense that I can to keep you from stumbling on the way to hearing about Jesus. You would be surprised the things that might be making people stumble around you when you talk to them. I was at the donut store a few weeks ago. Met a guy standing there talking. It was actually Sunday morning picking up donuts to bring here. And we're just talking and just talking about church. Where are you going today? What are you doing? And I invited him to come to our church today. You can come to our church right now. We're going to meet in about an hour and a half. You should come join us today. And he looked down at his clothes and he said, I don't know, I have to go home and change and shower and I've just got, I've got work to do and you know, I have to go get ready. And I said, man, if you want it, you can come just wearing exactly what you're wearing. And he was like, really? And I was like, yeah, really. Like, we don't care. I'm the preacher. This is what I'm wearing today. Like, we don't do the suit and jacket and tie thing. Some people wear shorts and flip-flops, you know? The only reason I don't wear shorts and flip-flops every single week is I think it would be a distraction if you saw my feet. Yeah. But in terms of conscience, like, I don't care. There's no law here. We're trying to serve one another. So, I mean, what a small thing. You mean I could come wearing this? That might trip up someone? This is what offense means in 1 Corinthians 10 for Paul. An offense is anything that makes someone get tripped up along the way. An offense is like saying, I refuse to provide handicap access to my establishment. You've got a six-inch curb out there in front of your restaurant. You've got eight-inch steps walking up to your front door. You just told everyone who's in a wheelchair, uh, sorry, you guys, you guys can't come in. And if they want to come in and eat at your restaurant, but they... You refuse to, to build them a ramp to get in. You know what they might say to you? That's offensive. I, I take that personally, that you're just keeping me out by not helping me find a way in. That's what Paul's kind of talking about here. I'm trying to make sure that there's no offense that keeps them from hearing the gospel of grace in Jesus 
Christ. Paul had Timothy circumcised just so Timothy's Greek heritage would not hinder the Jews from hearing about Jesus. They said you have to be circumcised to be saved. Paul knew that wasn't true. He knew that wasn't necessary. But he did anyway out of love. Only a mature, grace-trained conscience can take on a burden that you have been set free from for someone else. Because that's what Christ has done for us, has he not? An immature conscience, a weak conscience, can only look stupidly or thinly at things. Simply. And say, oh, look at, you know, look at Paul. He's supposed to be a, a minister of grace, and he got, he got Timothy circumcised. You know, he's clearly not a Christian. You know, the doctrine police. But Paul is the mature one. Paul is the one who can say, I know that we don't have to do this for salvation, but it is going to open a door. So watch and learn. So this ought to be our disposition, church. This ought to be our conscience. When it comes to pronouns in the workplace, attending weddings that you don't agree with, when it comes to differences about football teams and what real barbecue actually is, when you go to someone's house and they're serving food that's out of your diet, we should, everywhere we go all the time, be eager to make no offense. Don't mock the culture for being hyper-offended. We are still to have a disposition that seeks not to offend anyone so that we might reach them. Because here's the hope. Here's the hope. That like when Paul took Timothy, who was circumcised, that what would happen in Acts 16 would happen in our lives. Acts 16.4. So with circumcised Timothy, they went on their way, 16.4, through the cities. And what did they do? They delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem. In other words, they were able to tell them about grace. Circumcised Timothy is the one who could tell the people of circumcision that you don't have to be circumcised to be saved. He was willing to do that so that an open door would be there. That's a gospel, grace, trained conscience to look for an open door by not offending others. Is that your heart? I mean, has grace informed your conscience like that when it comes to differences? I don't care too much about me. I don't care too much about my liberties. I, I'll cheer for the eagles. I'll eat that food. I'll do whatever I can to make sure that there's an open door for the gospel to be heard. I take pains, Paul says, to make no offense. Now watch the other side of the coin. Paul, when all these pains have Timothy circumcised so there would be an open door, and yet he refused to have Titus circumcised when it would distort the gospel. He wanted to have Timothy circumcised when it would display the grace of the gospel, but he refused to have Titus circumcised when it would distort the gospel. Look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 1 through 5. Galatians 2, 1 through 5. You might think now, okay, well, we, we can make a law now. We can make an expectation now. Everyone's a Christian around us, so you know what we're going to do is, let's all just get circumcised for the sake of the Jews. Everybody. All the men, let's do that. That's a law now. We're all doing that out of love. No, it doesn't work like that. You can't take that conscience issue and turn it into a law. Look what Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, 1 through 5. After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with, with Barnabas, and this time Barnabas is taking Titus along with me. 
And I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. In the same situation. Now we've got Titus, a Greek, in Jerusalem. He was not forced to be circumcised. Verse 4, Yet because of the false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom, freedom not to be circumcised, and freedom out from under the burden of the law, the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ, so that they might bring us to slavery, put the law back on us again, just like Acts 15. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Galatians. We would not do that when we were in Jerusalem so that when we got out to Galatians, to Galatia, to you guys, the gospel would still be preserved. That's the very same thing. Circumcision was demanded. They wanted to force Titus to be circumcised, saying you must be circumcised to be saved. And unlike with Timothy, Paul said with Titus, no, we will not succumb to those demands. We will not distort the gospel and let people begin to believe that you have to be circumcised, that you have to obey the law of Moses on your own righteousness to be saved. It will distort the gospel if we do this, Titus. It will communicate in this situation to these people that you're saved, not by grace, but by the sign and by the law. So Paul had Timothy circumcised to display the grace of the gospel, but he wouldn't have Titus circumcised to keep from distorting the gospel. You see the kind of wisdom and attention that is required of us here? It requires a combination of passion for the gospel to be known, for the gospel to be heard and carefulness about what you say and do and what's going to communicate to the people that you're engaging. If you find that your boss is saying, you must do this, you must stop doing what your religion requires of you, you must stop doing what Jesus commands of you, do you go against the command of the Lord? We don't have a conscience like that. You might need to be prepared to be fired and not remove an event. Just as an example, there seems to be a rise. I mentioned in passing earlier. I know you guys probably thought we didn't say enough about it, but just something simple as using people's pronouns at work. I mean, I've had so many people ask me about this in the last couple of years. And it seems like increasingly, in one sense, it's really nothing. You know, it's fine. I'll call you by your preferred pronoun. It could be that the use of he, she, or they, them on a, on a Zoom call with your team is simply a matter of courtesy. It doesn't mean that you've apostatized your faith or forsaken Jesus Christ in the Bible. It could be a context like that. Or it, it could mean in circum, some circumstances that as a, a Christian in your conscience, and what it would mean for those who hear that you, you, you to, to talk like that would be going against the very fabric of existence and against God's creation. And you would realize, I, I'm being asked to bow down to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar here, and I'm a faithless coward if I just do that and don't even think about it. And, and, if, you, and if you do that, then, oh man, you know what that means? That means you're capitulating 
to the culture, to the praise of men rather than the glory of God. And if you find that you are being forced to celebrate, to capitulate, and show solidarity with something that is absolutely doctrinally contrary to the message of the gospel, you should not do it. But see, it takes a stronger, grace-trained conscience to use your liberty to gain an audience. And it takes a special care and attention to make sure that your use of liberty does not accidentally distort the gospel of Christ too. Now some of you might right now be thinking, okay, you just lost me. I'm mad at you because you disagree with me. You're, You're not on my side. That's kind of the whole point of bringing this up. You're going to have to think more critically than, well, I'm not going to be offended by you, and I won't let you, you know, I'm, I'm just going to stand my ground, I'm not going to commit. Paul takes pains to make sure there's no offense. But you might be careful. You might just be sucked in so deeply, you don't even realize you're actually distorting the gospel by joining in celebrations and, and worship of what God calls sin. Here's how Andrew Nacelli in his book Conscience explains that Christian liberty is not about you and your freedom to do what you want to do. Oh, so important for us to hear. The freedom from having to be circumcised for Paul is not freedom for Paul to just do whatever he wants. It's all about the freedom to discipline yourself, Nacelli says, to be flexible for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of weak believers. Train your conscience. Reading Andrew Nacelli's book might be a huge way for you to begin thinking about that more critically. Couldn't be more at stake, though. The open door to share the gospel by being circumcised. The actual message of the gospel by refusing to be circumcised. The actual use of your liberty or the laying down of your liberty. Something that in Christ you know you have the liberty to do, but you actually say, I'll put it down. I don't want to do that. Because that might offend someone and keep them from coming to the gospel. A few things as we close here. <clears throat> you should consider your conscience. One or three things to close here. You should consider your conscience. I mean, have you just turned your conscience off? Have you just begun to ignore it? You just keep telling it to shut up? That's not good? That is not a good way to live your life. It's not wise. Luther would say it's not safe either. We tend to think of our conscience as kind of an internal battle between good and evil. We have, maybe some of us have that scene from the Emperor's New Groove when Gronk is kind of in that scenario of what do I do with the Emperor in the bag here? And you've got the, you know, the angel Gronk on this shoulder going, hey, we need to think about righteousness. And you've got the devil Gronk over here going, I want to read you down the, the path that rocks. And we've got little devils on our shoulder telling us what to do. But our consciousness is simply our consciousness of what we think is right and wrong. It is extremely foolish to go through life ignoring our conscience, whether you're a Christian or not. An example relayed uh, from John MacArthur goes like this. There was an Italian airliner years ago um, flying a plane full of passengers. They were going in and, in and out of clouds. And at one point, uh, an American English voice, technical voice, they picked up the black box later. An American English voice comes up and says, pull up, pull up, pull up. And the Italian turned the button off and said, shut up, gringo. And about a minute later, they plummeted right into the side of a mountain. We ought to pay careful attention to our conscience like that. And your conscience is saying, pull up, 
And your conscience is saying, don't do that on the internet. And your conscience is saying, don't go there. Don't begin that relationship with that woman. Don't watch this. Don't think this. Don't talk that way. We've got to listen. We've got to consider our conscience. Remember Paul's defense, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. I want my mind to be clear about what I'm doing both to God and to man. I actually take pain to have a clear conscience. We kind of live in a world, I think, where I'd rather be comfortable and ignore my conscience. Paul took pain to make sure he has a clear conscience. Consider your conscience carefully. Do it carefully. This might require you to slow down life. I mean, it, it's hard when you're going 115 down Highway 130 for your conscience to go slow down. Like you can't even hear. You can't even think. We're, we're plummeting through life and we never spend time to pray. We never spend time to slow down and open God's Word and read it. And think about it and contemplate on it. And we're, just, we're, we're just making decisions like this. Our conscience can't even keep up. So slow down. Meditate on Scripture and think about right and wrong carefully. Secondly, you should consider the conscience of others. I mean, this is big time what Paul's doing, considering the conscience of others. Someone says, well, we can't ever, ever use anyone's pronoun that they request because that'll be like taking the mark of the beast. Well, that actually might be the weaker conscience. It says something from that side of a perspective. They would never be able to support Timothy being circumcised because they feel like it would be giving in, it would be losing to the Judaizers. But be careful with those who have weaker consciences. Be careful with them. If they don't understand that you can be a Christian and drink beer, then I wouldn't. If they don't understand that you can use pronouns or eat meat or vote for a political candidate, then be wise about how you think and about how you act on your liberty in everything. For example, it's one thing to have a beer at home once in a while because your conscience is clear in the Lord according to Scripture and counsel. And that's a mature use of your, your liberty. It's another thing as a Christian to post pictures of you drinking margaritas during happy hour on social media and make everyone have to agree with you or it actually stings their conscience, offends them, other Christians. We have a different conscience about that. And not just because of the mission to lost people, but also even to Christians themselves and their conscience. Paul says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, 1 Corinthians 8, if food makes my brother stumble, my brother, not just lost people, then I'll never eat meat. I mean, you want to talk about a sacrifice? I'll never eat meat? Lest my brother stumble. If your liberty crushes the conscience of weaker brothers and sisters, it's no longer a good use of your liberty or your conscience. It's become actually unloving. Listen to how starkly Paul speaks about this. You're dealing, every one of you, with the conscience of your weaker brothers. He says in 1 Corinthians, and so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. Your use of your liberty, this weak person over here, is destroyed. They're crushed. The brother for whom Christ died. This sinning, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Not even just about you and them. When your brothers and sisters have weak consciences about what their liberties might be, and you just go on using your liberty, not caring if they're concerned or not, you sin against Christ, who died to save them too. You just go back to thinking about holding hands. I think it's fine. My conscience was clear. 
uh, probably was not thinking very missional for Jesus in the moment. Nazir thinks it's fine. He even thought it was funny. But if Julie sees us holding hands and it's going to make her head explode, maybe we just don't. Not just for the sake of lost people in the city, but for our sister who has a weaker conscience in regards to how we go about the mission. You may need to be the person who stops holding hands for the sake of your sister. You may need to be the sister who grows up in your conscience and doesn't lose their mind because someone else is holding hands. Should we take Mark with us? Paul's going to have to consider his conscience and also Barnabas's, make a decision. Eventually we know Mark is going to be redeemed and join Paul through mission, mentioned in multiple letters. Paul even calls for Mark at the end of his life. Be considerate of other people wrestling with their consciences too. They might circumcise someone when you wouldn't. They might use phrases when you wouldn't. They might eat food when you wouldn't. They might have a weaker conscience or a stronger conscience than you. Be careful about your brothers and sisters' conscience in the use of your own liberty. Finally, you should train your conscience by grace. You should actively seek to train your conscience by grace. Your your conscience is not an abstract kind of spiritual ethereal thing that can't be touched and it's fixed in everybody. It can be trained And it should be trained. It needs training. You can go from a place, I would never do that. I would never do that. You can go from a place, I would never do that, to let's do that. So that those people might hear about Jesus. And the offense is actually the grace itself. You you might go from a position of, I don't care. I don't care what anyone else says about this. But you begin to learn, the more I do this, the more it makes people think differently about the gospel of grace. It actually distorts the gospel. And so I realize what what used to be a free conscience for me, now is actually conscience binding for me. Because I don't want to distort the gospel. Our conscience can learn. And it should be shaped by grace in the gospel and the grace and the commands of Jesus Christ. As you grow in learning God's word, as your conscience is developing truth about what is right and wrong, we are to develop our minds according to what is in the Word of God and what are the commands of Jesus Christ. Maturity in conscience is when the commands of Jesus Christ and what you think is right and wrong begin to shorten and gap. It's not safe to ignore your conscience. It's also not safe to singularly trust your conscience. You have a clean conscience about violence and nudity and lawlessness and you think it's entertaining and fun? Maybe you shouldn't. Maybe you should have a conscience about that. Maybe it should bother you. I think in this case, Colette has been an example to me in many ways. We don't watch many shows or movies at home together anymore. We, I think we have less desire. We're too tired. We... And stuff going on. We were, we're watching kids' movies. Recently, we tried to watch a show we'd never seen before, we'd never heard of. We just watched the trailer. It sounded interesting. And I want to say in the first episode, the first maybe two episodes, I mean, there's just some, some violence, some pretty gruesome, thoughtless, heartless, not in war, just violent, quick death right at the beginning. I didn't think anything about it. Here I am watching this show and thinking, oh, this is fine, no big deal. 
you know, we're, this is movies. I mean, this is not good, but this will be over. We'll get back to the story. I look over at Colette. She's covering her eyes and wincing like bullets are flying in our room. Like we're in it. And I realize I'm immune to this. My conscience is clean. But hers isn't. I don't think this is good. Maybe my conscience needs to grow. Maybe my conscience needs to be informed by Paul's command in Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. We ought to train our conscience because sometimes we might go weeks without praying. Months without opening our Bibles to read God's Word for ourselves, We might miss opportunity after opportunity to share the gospel with a lost person. And you know what? Our conscience might be so seared by our own comfort and our own lives, it doesn't even bother us. I mean, what a tragedy. To ignore the Lord in devotion, to ignore the mission, to ignore prayer. And just go, I don't even think about it. I just go to sleep at night and everything's fine. We are told to make disciples, not just leaving them free to their consciences, but to teach them to observe everything that Jesus has commanded. To train their consciences by grace and by Christ's commands. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and our consciousness ought to, if we are growing, look more like Christ's. Our conscience is that scale that we carry around Everywhere we go, weighing every decision that we ever make, is this good? Is this bad? And just like some of us may have stepped on a scale at some point in recent history and thought, maybe the scale's broken. We might be making decisions that we feel fine about, but our conscience is actually uncalibrated according to Christ's grace and His Word. Train your conscience according to grace and according to Christ's command. We do this so that we might display the grace of Christ according to our conscience and so that we might also keep from distorting the gospel of grace according to Jesus as we seek to win more people for Him. One of the things I was thinking about as I was looking at this, if your passion and your desire is never to win more people to Jesus. My guess would be you struggle very little in regards to your conscience toward them. Might we close in prayer? But that would be our passion. We would train our consciences according. Let's pray. Father, we pray now that as we have heard your word, it would have its effect on us in our hearts and our minds. When there are commands that you give us and we are ignorant of them and our consciences are seared to them, God, would you be so gracious to let us feel conviction again, to awaken our consciences to your word and to grace. Would you help us, Father, make it this week as we think now and pray about our week, not how do I get out of pain, but how might I pain myself to make sure that there's no offense to keep someone from hearing the gospel? Father, if the gospel would be offensive, let it be offensive. But Father, help us make sure that there is no offense 
unnecessary caused by us and our preferences and our loves and our selfishness. In our relationship with our brothers and sisters, Father, help us just forget ourselves. Help us live according to grace and your commands and be gentle with one another, patient with one another as we and they and each other work to grow in training our consciousness for your glory and for our joy.